Hey folks, this is Jeff Wenzel from the Woodshed Agency, and you are listening to the very first episode of our brand new podcast called Successfully Funded. All right, here we go. As I said before, this is our first episode, and we're super excited about getting this off the ground. Um, Over the last couple months or so, uh, the Woodshed team, Paul, Sean, and myself, kind of had an idea that we really wanted to launch a podcast, but we didn't want to just launch one that, you know, doesn't really have value. Um, You know, we wanted to have something that is, is a good product out there for crowdfunders and people who are thinking about doing crowdfunding and even entrepreneurs. So after a few meetings and kind of brainstorming, what we came up with is we wanted to do a podcast where we interview project creators in the middle of their campaign. We wanted to talk to them while they're in the fire. You know, what are they doing? What, what's it feel like? How many emails are they getting? You know, how did they get? And then breaking down, how did they get a project that probably popped into their mind years ago, decades ago, whatever it might be, all the way to the point where we know that they're going to successfully fund. And these conversations are for you as a listener to you know, give you the most up-to-date information on crowdfunding. One of the things that we saw early on, you know, kind of forming Woodshed Agency, is, is a sort of lack of up-to-date knowledge. You know, there's a ton of blogs from 2012, 2013, 2014 about, you know, I did this and raised $100,000, and all of those are great. The problem is, Things are changing so rapidly in this field. If Facebook makes a change, if Kickstarter makes a change, all those things have an impact on your campaign. And if you're not aware of it, the chances of you failing are so high. I mean, that's just some basic data. You know, I think it's something like 40% of the campaigns uh, are successful on, on Kickstarter. So, you know, that's why we wanted to break sure that we are giving you information, not only just from our mouth, but you're hearing it from actual creators who are having success. What did they do before they launched? What are they doing right now? You know, maybe three days into their campaign, 10 days into their campaign. You know, what are they going to do at the last minute of this campaign? That's the info we wanted to give you. And that's why we, we created this podcast. So coming up today on this episode, we have an interview with Scott Thrift, from the Kickstarter campaign today. And I'm telling you, you have to check out this link. And I'm going to put it in the page where this uh, uh, podcast is hosted. you got to click on this link and go check it out. What this guy is doing in regards to time is unbelievable. Un- it's phenomenal. So, um, so I definitely want you to stick around and check that episode out. It's a great 30-minute conversation And if you're an entrepreneur, if you're into manufacturing a product, you're going to get so much out of this conversation. So that's going to be coming up next. So how did everybody have, how how was everybody's Father's Day? Everybody have a good Father's Day weekend? Yeah, you know, that was last weekend. Um, You know, just kind of give you a little insight into my life here. Uh, You know, I've got a pretty odd relationship going on with my dad right now. And and just to give you some background, my dad is really, really sick. Um, you know, he's been in and out of the hospital almost every six weeks or so. 
He is on dialysis. Um, mentally, he's very checked out right now in life. And he's a young guy. He's 63. 60, yeah, 63. And, you know, it's an incredibly challenging thing to watch your parent kind of just, frankly, almost giving up. And um, recently I got my dad actually into some therapy uh, down where he lives because I think he needs to start talking to somebody that's not his wife or my mom or me and my sister. And, you know, that's been a little bit of an up and down thing there. But, um, you know, the good thing is, is that, you know, we're trying. But this Father's Day, you know, I, I also have, I have small kids. I've got a five and a three-year-old. And uh, I had, I think, the prototypical Father's Day when you have young kids. You know, I get some artwork and, uh, you know, some breakfast and all that's great. Totally great. Um, you know, then my parents came up and my dad, I describe as basically very similar to Cameron from Ferris Bueller's Day Out after he finds out that the miles aren't coming off, right? Where he's just uh, sort of a, you know, a zombie. That's what my dad is like 24-7. So conversation is um, is just minimum to nothing. Um, you know, so my dad came up and my mom, you know, on, uh, on Father's Day and, and I thought it would be, you know, I have these expectations that I know I'm probably projecting on the people, but I have this expectation of like, you know, we were at my son's very, uh, final flag football. You know, it's his first season. Um, you know, so we're watching him. Uh, my dad's there. I'm having this moment of like, this is great. You know, this should be a nice family thing. And my dad's just kind of checked out, uh, you know, not really into it, not really communicating. So that's a very frustrating thing. And, you know, um, so I, I keep fighting this battle right now internally where, uh, I feel like I have to have this like father son moment, you know, that, you know, you kind of, for lack of a term, seeing the movies or whatever it is where you just, you, you reach out and you just, you say these things, but it just doesn't happen. And, and I'm struggling with it and I don't know how to find that perfect time. And I, I, and you know what, there isn't actually probably a perfect time. It just has to happen. So, you know, so hopefully on your father's day, you know, you, you talk to your dad, you had a, you know, you have your moments and if you're not, and you're struggling like me, you know, uh, we got to fight that battle. I got to find a way that to communicate with them. So, but so another thing that happened yesterday that I wanted to bring up and really open the forum and, and ask you to, if you're an entrepreneur or a small business or if you have a business or, or you have clients, whatever it might be, I want you to reach out to me because I'd love to hear, get your advice on, on this sort of topic. So Yesterday, a mutual friend of this potential client and myself uh, introduced us that, you know, and with, a, with the caveat that sh- this person might be interested in your media outreach. And we do media outreach for Woodshed Agency. And that means that journalists, you know, get at me and ask for stories or ask for people that could contribute to pieces, you know, blogs and uh, podcasts and all this stuff. So I get a healthy amount of those leads. So uh, after researching this potential client, uh, she seemed like she would be really good for this, frankly. Um, so after a couple emails back and forth, you know, we set up a, a, a phone conversation. Get on the call, and, and I spent about 30 minutes kind of describing the process and, and hearing from her what, what she does. And I come to the realization, like, this would be a great client. She, she, she could be great in some of these things. Then the conversation turns into cost right? The old money conversation. So I bring up to her that this is X dollars per month for me to, you know, filter through hundreds of leads per day, (laughs) find the ones that are right for you, give them to you, have you write three or four paragraphs, you send it back to me, I edit it, and then submit it, do the follow-up, 
you know, try to get you placed in, in magazines and whatnot. As soon as I brought up that price, everything changed. The conversation, the tone, it's like, and I'll quote this person. She um, basically said, you know, I, why would I have to pay for this? Why wouldn't you just do this? And I don't know what that response, my response, uh, uh, you know, I'm, I was dumbfounded. I'm like, I, I don't, I don't, I don't really know you. <laughs> why would I, you know, X out five to six hours per week for you to do this for free? I'm, I'm not, I'm not following. The price I'm mentioning is not ridiculous at all um, for me to be doing this. So I'm wondering what you guys out there do when you get in this sort of scenario where, price is just the only objective do you just move on which is what i'm doing i've just brushed it off as fast as possible do you follow up with this person do you try to resell yourself a little bit more to re-explain it um you know or is it just a deal breaker right away and i lead, i keep leaning towards deal breaker right away if price is the big huge hang-up then you're not hearing me you're not seeing how i'm connecting the dots you're not seeing my value i have to move on right away so i'd love if you could you know comment you know, either in, uh, in our blog section or email me, Jeff at woodshed.agency and let me know how you handle scenarios like that. All right. That's enough about me rambling. Let's get to this interview with Scott Thrift from the Kickstarter campaign today. And I am telling you, you got to check this one out. If you've got some, some cash that you want to spend, get one of these clocks. I think this is going to be very revolutionizing in terms of the world. And this conversation goes into a lot of different topics that I think is going to, would be beneficial. Like I said, if you're an entrepreneur, if you're in startup, even if you have a business and something too, if you're struggling with anxiety of time, when you're always freaked out, like I don't have enough, to, I don't have enough. Oh my God, two o'clock. I got to do this. Six o'clock. I gotta do this. The, this conversation will help you as well. All right. Enough of me rambling. Let's get to this interview. Scott Thrift from the Kickstarter campaign today. your project got to where it is and uh and how and what you guys even did on the first one um because i think this is your second one if i'm not mistaken right yeah i mean uh truthfully it's my second one i did do another one called the future of the present which was a video series which is sort of chronicled um what was happening with the present um i wish i didn't do it because it just wasn't sensational enough of mm -hmm. an idea um, it was kind of a follow-up to the present just to um, really just to sell some more clocks. And it's probably not, it wasn't the best move. So in, in, a, in a way, this is my second project, but I do have three up there. I'm three for three. Gotcha. Okay. That, all right. I didn't, yeah, I didn't see that, uh, that first one you were talking about there. So, but so, you know, just kind of getting started here, where, how are you obsessed with time? How did this project come to fruition? What's your background to, to make you kind of dive into this sort of you know, this sort of interesting field. All right. Okay. So we've got a half an hour. So yeah, yeah, yeah. I'll tell you the story. I mean, I, um, I used to edit deck to deck, um, you know, SVHS to SVHS deck with a master deck back in 1994, 1995 in my high school video class. Uh, and then we, uh, won a film competition. Uh, we got a $10,000 cash prize and we bought, uh, an avid, uh, prosumer, you know, nonlinear edit editing system. And it was the first of its kind that you could just buy for a couple grand. And basically, I took a tape 
and I put it into a computer and it became digital and I put it on a timeline and I was, I just, I stayed up for three days straight. I couldn't believe it. I felt like I was seeing the invention of electricity. I couldn't, I just couldn't believe that you could turn a tape into digital information and then cut it and undo and, uh, you know, just, you could play around on the timeline all you wanted and then just erase it and put it, I don't know. It was just so crazy. So I was like 16 years old. And, um, that really just shot me into, you know, that's, I wanted to go to film school. I wanted to be a great editor. Um, and so basically for the past 20 years, I've been shooting and editing videos. Um, and I created a company, uh, once I, when I first moved to New York, uh, called missing pieces. Uh, and we just, me and a friend of mine, we just started taking over the web video world of, you know, bringing on serious clients and showing them how to make great videos online. Um, yeah, I just, I, I've been making videos. That's really where it comes from. It's sitting in a editing room for tens of thousands of hours, manipulating time. You know, you get a really weird, you have really weird time experiences. The longer you stay in an editing room, um, you could edit for 10 hours straight and it's like, what have I just done? You know, and you're, you're essentially as a filmmaker, you're compressing time. You're trying to crystallize time. You're cutting out even, you know, one of, one twenty-fourth of a frame to make your edit, edited video perfect, um, and so I was just working on those things and wanting to, um, wanting to make videos that lasted for a hundred years, wanting to make work that was legendary and, and timeless, and I just felt like, man, I'm I'm working on a whole different scale here, uh, and so that's why I started obsessing about maybe making a different time scale that art and all the great works of art exist within, which is this year long clock. It's really, you know, timeless works of art truly are timeless. It doesn't even, it transcends even a year, but I think I just wanted to, um, upgrade the system, uh, one, one step more. So that's where the present came from. Uh, do you want me to continue to tell you how the pre today happened? Uh, I'm, well, first of all, that's fascinating. Yeah. Uh, Sean will probably chime in here in a second. Sean is our video sure. editor who has probably has, I don't know, three or 400 online videos. And I'm sure he can, he knows exactly what you're talking about of this sitting yeah. in a dark room for. Yeah. 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 I was going to say, <laughs> I have experienced that phenomenon of lost time, you know, where I've, uh, uh, sat down to edit a project, you know, in the evening. And next thing I know, I'm hearing people coming in for work in the morning and, you know, it feels like an hour has passed, but I've been there for 10 hours. That's a great feeling, right? I mean, yeah, it's, it's the a, best. It's, a, it's an amazing phenomenon that, that one of two phenomenons for video editing that uh, I, I have difficulty explaining to people. You know, the other the other phenomenon is when you're seeing, you know, a stranger's face in the background, you know, maybe an extra or someone in the back of a video for 10 hours and you, you, you know, you recognize them on the street. You know, it's, just, right. <laughs> you know, them, their, their face very well. They don't know you from Adam. Those are those are two very uh, distinct feelings from video editing. Yeah, it's a pretty special thing. I think it's one of the most, not only is it uh, pushing the boundaries of uh, what the um, computer technology can handle. I mean, all the processors are all, it's all about video. Um, and beyond that, it's really pushing your, your mind to grapple with this so many different, I mean, as, a, as an editor, you're sitting there and you're like, okay, this could go literally 2 million different ways. I got I to gotta pick the best one out of 2 million. Or how, I mean, it's probably even more than that. So your brain just gets so engaged and it's so satisfying. And it's definitely the thing in my life where I've, I've found that flow state, that place where time doesn't exist, um, and I feel like I'm just uh, sort of a chauffeur 
for an idea and I'm just kind of putting things together. And I feel that same way with this, these clock projects. I feel like this is way bigger than, than me and I'm just here to kind of, you know, help guide it along. So, so jump, let's jump from, you know, you're, you're doing a bunch of video editing. How do you like all of a sudden get into this, you know, the time conversation, you know? Well, uh, to be completely honest, the, uh, the first idea, I had the idea for this 365 day clock. Um, I was actually filming myself. I had one of these moments where I was like, okay, these are the best ideas I've ever had. Okay. I'm going to, I'm going to turn on the camera and I'm going to tell the camera. And I actually had the idea for the clock as I was talking to the camera back in, I was in a basement in the West Village in Manhattan in uh, 2004, and I had this idea. And I've, I thought about it from time to time, you know what I mean? Like, I was like, oh, I should definitely do that. That would be a really cool thing. But, like, who's going to listen to me? Who's going to – how do you even – where do you even begin about, like, how do you even make a year-long clock? That's crazy. So part of me making a video company was to gain this clout, you know, mm-hmm. to have – to work with serious – uh, clients and for you know American Express to hire us to do stuff for the TED organization to hire us to go film behind the scenes documentaries about what happens at TED and things like this. It was just putting ourselves putting myself in a position where I was like, okay, now now I'm ready to follow sort of my true calling, which I, I think is to reinvent time. You know, can can I springboard off that just a little bit? That sure. um, the one of the things that really stood out to me about your campaign for, for today is, you know, it really has this sort of spiritualism to it. The language that you use on the page, the way you've cut the video. Um, and I'm, I'm really, I'm, I'm curious whether you agree that that's, you know, is that something you did consciously? And do you think it's, you know, what impact do you think having that sort of, uh, vibe to the whole thing has, you know, has that been, you know, has that contributed to your success really is my question. I think people always respond to authenticity. I mean, there's nothing more real than this to me. I, I, this isn't something, I think some people can get confused when you use Kickstarter. They're like, Oh, this is this cool design object. And it's so much more uh, than that to me. And I mean, I've actually, given as I've given everything I've got to put myself in a place to where I want to be working on the thing that I think is the most important thing that I can possibly contribute to society or, or I'm not gonna be able to sleep well at night. So that's why I'm really doing this because I actually know uh, that it has an impact on people that live with it. Um, it's, and it's not all in my head. I started giving the clock to press over the past month. Um, and you know, thinking, oh, maybe it won't actually do the thing that I'm saying it's going to do. And then they started getting back to me saying like, wow, this is, this is a whole different thing you're talking about. So that's why I think the press has been, uh, very responsive, but yeah, I think there is a, there is a spirituality to it in that, um, yeah, I, I really feel like I'm connecting with my truth that I'm, I'm really doing the thing that is, I'm listening to all the influences that I've had and I'm processing it into this thing that hopefully just gives back to to everybody who who has a chance to to live with it. That that, that springboards into a question I have um, that that I'm most curious about with this is how has your life in productivity changed since you've changed turned over to this 24 hour perception of time? Like what has it physically done to you? Um, well, physicality, it is all about physicality because if you look at a regular clock, the clocks that have been used now for, you know, since the industrial revolution, essentially, 
um, that clock has three different hands and you're looking at it and it's kind of just spinning along and you never, you never really feel like you get a chance to catch up by eliminating the lines and the numbers and bringing it down to just one hand, uh, and making that a white hand across, uh, against a really soft, uh, sort of calming graphic of, of the day shifting. Uh, it really does. I think the best way to put it would just be to say, you know, I look up at it and I feel encouraged. I feel like, um, I don't know, like it's got my back or something hmm. that, that I'm, that I'm moving in my own time, uh, that, you know, I feel like I have really good timing even before I, I had the, started doing the clocks. Um, I mean, that's part of the nature of being an editor. Um, but even outside of the editing room in life, I would always have these moments two or three times a day where it'd be like, oh my God, that's really good timing. Or, you know, I, I feel like I'm somebody who is always in the right place at the right time um, for a very long time now. And so it is just a, uh, um, it, what's the word? It, um, it, it, uh, it magnifies that, I guess. It, it, it augments um, an experience I'm already having. It shows me really the time that I think the world actually works in, the natural world. And I think we've really just wound ourselves up uh, a little too much over the past couple hundred years. We're having a hangover of the Industrial Revolution, and there are certain ideas that are sort of left over that I think really need to be challenged. Um, and not necessarily, I'm not saying that, you know, the today clock should replace all 12 hours twice a day clocks. But I do think, it, you know, maybe in 100 years, uh, Hopefully, you'll see this clock a lot more often than than you would a clock from eighteen sixteen. That's that is that's crazy. It's it's so sweet to think about, man. Uh, it's it's like literally a mind blower uh, <laughs> type of project. Are, are you getting that sort of response? I guess when when you're when this is kind of going out. I mean, obviously the Kickstarter is doing phenomenal, you know. But it's just like I, I got to imagine. I mean, my my. I'm, I'm a common dude, right? Who's work, you know, entrepreneur working my brain off 24 seven, you know, like it never shuts off. So I'm imagining that you're, you're finding that out in the, you know, out in the world, people just going like, wow, you, I never even thought about it. I just, you know, <laughs> just the clock's there. I got to imagine you're just getting a lot of that conversation back. I definitely get a lot of that. I got a lot of that with the 365 day clock in a way is even more abstract. It's more, profound. There's something about it. It's like, whoa, really, man? Are you serious? And I actually didn't really understand how abstract and artsy, I guess, the, mm -hmm. the present is until I started working on the Today Project. Because the Today Project kind of borrows from both regular time as, as we know it, which I, what I call industrial era time or computer time. Uh, and then and then we have the present, you know, and I think the Today borrows from both those places. It has this element of abstraction and, and beauty and poetry, but it also has a, a, a pretty strong element of practicality. Uh, so, so I, yeah, I think the response in general has been good. Um, and I, th and I think it's, you know, it's, it's reflected in, in the funding, which is pretty exciting. Um, but, you know, I'm never satisfied in my mind. I'm like, I, I'm literally trying to change the way the world sees time and providing tools to, uh, alter your perception of, of life itself. And, uh, and I don't understand why it hasn't hit $10 million. You know what I mean? Right. Like what, what, what good's a pebble? going to do you. That's not going to rearrange the experience of your life. That's not going to make your relationships in your life more deep and more rich. And your yeah. So I have a chip on my shoulder. 
I don't understand why it's a hundred, you know, at a hundred million, but <laughs> well, well, what did you, what did you do with, you know, what did you do to get to here? I mean, you talked about kind of giving it out to press at first. Was there, you know, like, you know, what, what did you, what would your roadmap look like kind of when you started this? Um, yeah, I think I, I, I'm not very, I feel maybe I am good at, uh, I don't feel like I'm good at the social media, basically. Like I was born in 1979. I feel like I just missed the, the boat um, and I'm not that engaged. It doesn't really do anything for me. Uh, so I brought on a campaign manager this time around uh, with Alex Daly and her business, Van Alexandra. Uh, and just so that she could sort of hold my hand on the social media side and mm-hmm. be basically like a, a new form, a progressive new public relations form, uh, firm for um for crowdfunding projects. Mm-hmm. And so I brought her on and I came, came to realize that I, I already had like a, I had a lot of contacts already from my work um, as the co-founder of this, that company I told you about, Missing right. Pieces. And so I had already built up a, a pretty huge list of, of uh, some, of the, some of the more interesting press contacts. And it wasn't too much trouble to sort of reach out to them and be like, hey, I've got this new thing. People really liked the present. They remember that. And people know me as somebody at least these people know me as somebody who's uh, really knocked it out of the park with missing pieces and decided to sort of let that go and try something new. And so I think people reward that as well, taking a risk and actually pulling through and, and going for something big and, and it landing. So I think that's also what's happening. Um, I, honestly, I just think that there's a lot of goodwill uh, involved in this project. And it's hard to say, like, is there a ingredients or anything that put this in, in its right place? And I really just think it's a it's a beautiful thing that people are going to really like and they're looking for something like this so i think that's really the success is is there i think it's on the tip of everybody's tongue mm-hmm. uh, yeah. how much time did you and your team take prior to launch to setting up your social media strategy and your media strategy um there was a lot of back and forth i would say no no less than six weeks um leading up to it there were a lot of uh, photo shoots that didn't work out um, because you know Kickstarter is a completely different beast than it was when I first used it in October of 2011. Back then, you could get away with being uh, you know having prototypes that didn't look like totally finished products. You, you could uh, play into the idea that you were an amateur trying to make this happen. I mean, I am the only person at my company. I've never made enough money to be able to hire anybody, um, and I'm in a position to where this really is a prototype kind of thing. Like I'm, I don't have a team of people that are uh, busting these out or helping me make this happen. So I, I'm coming from a place to where, yeah, it's been a challenge to just have a project on Kickstarter that doesn't look super professional. I think that was like, that's been the hardest thing because the expectation on Kickstarter now, you know, you've got teams like the Pebble where they have 50 employees um, and they're just like knocking out of the park because I mean, there's no way they can't. They've got a huge entourage. So, yeah. All right. So I, I, I've got a question. Um, you know, you mentioned Kickstarter is a different beast. Uh, you know, another, another different beast is, is Facebook. When, when you did your first campaign and was it 2012, Facebook was a wide open landscape. You could, you could, uh, you could grow your, your, uh, you know, you could put something out there and it would get shared organically. And right. now, now the algorithm's totally different. If you post something to your company page 
only like 16% of the, the people who've liked your page are going to see it unless you right. spend money on it with, with Facebook ads. So I'm curious, um, did you go down that path with, you know, with promoting, you know, today, did you, did you do Facebook ads? Did you have a, a media campaign on Facebook? Did you spend money on it? How much money? Uh, not much money at all. Honestly, I tried it out and it just was not responding very well. Um, we hired a guy who sort of ran some ads and it was, it was a, a wrestling match of just like, I just don't want it to feel cheesy. You know, I'd rather not run an ad than to have somebody come across my brand and be like, "Ugh, this feels kind of weird. Um, you know, it's a privileged position to be in, but I, I feel like, uh, I would, every contact point that somebody's going to have with today or the present, I want it to feel genuine and, and of, of my voice. Um, but, uh, yeah, I did a little bit. It just didn't work out. And honestly, you know, people are emailing me. I mean, it's amazing how many people email saying, I've got your answer. You know, I've got, I mean, there's, there's gotta be at least, I've got to have it like 50 different emails from different companies saying, I can do this for you. I can do this for you. So, um, that's kind of amazing. That's, that definitely didn't happen in 2011. There's this whole, you know, cottage industry of people, um, promising you the world, uh, but it's to be expected. Kickstarter is a huge thing in the world, um, and people love it. But um, but no, I, I I think I'm going to be zeroing in on Facebook post campaign um, because I can see very clearly who the type of person is that that backed the project, and, and you know this, the the magic of Facebook. I really haven't even scratched the surface with it yet. So I think I was just a little too um, amateur going into it, and I think the person that I was using we, we didn't really get each other. So uh, no, I, I didn't have a really good experience, and I didn't spend that much money. What, what about Twitter? No Twitter? Yeah, Twitter, definitely. That's my, I think that's the A-plus um, region of the of Van Alexander team. The crowd sorceress is what they call her. Um, and I think a big part of her strategy is definitely leaning on on Twitter. But, but actually, when you look at the, um, you know, uh, Kickstarter has a semi-decent, you know, way of tracking, as you guys know, mm. uh, what kind of, um, who's, who's getting what. And, and Twitter... It hasn't really performed that well now. I mean, it's 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 crazy. I mean, like uh, Katie Holmes posted about it uh, on her Instagram, and it gets two thousand likes. But it's like, how can you even channel that? I, I don't know. It doesn't seem uh, people want to make you believe that there is some science to it, and maybe there is if you just spend five hundred dollars a day on Facebook. But I don't know. I don't. I don't really see it. I don't. You know, the, the most of my pledges have come from uh, the press articles. And how that's bouncing around, and also Kickstarter itself has really kind of pushed the project. They really like it a lot. So, what, what what was your like biggest fear going into this campaign prior to the first one? I mean, or did you have a ton of confidence kind of leading into it, was, or was anything, I don't know, anything fearful for you? Um, I mean, I think just the natural fear of coming out to everybody and saying, "Hey, I believe in this," and mm -hmm. and I want and I want you to believe in it too, and the nature of of somebody, I mean, it's, it's, there's, I don't know, maybe it's just me, but it's, there's some shame element of like asking for money that's tied into any kind of crowdfunding project. I wish I could just give them this experience free, you know, and if I kind of had it my way, my friends have told me, it's like, you know, if you could, you would probably just give all these clocks away. I'm like, yeah, I would. But I mean, I also want to be able to at least break even. Um, so I set the pricing on, on the, uh, on all the clocks really, really low. And it actually, you know, if you look at it, it's like, what, $88, that's low, or 118 or 158 that's low. It actually is incredibly low. I'm making it all in Brooklyn. Everything's made in the U.S. Everything's five times more expensive than it would be if I went to China. 
Um, but I just, I don't want that headache. It's, it's nothing, it's not a moral uh, decision. I just, I just want to be, or I need to be at the actual place filming it with my, you know, head over somebody's shoulder being like, yes, that's the way you do it, do it that way. Right. So I'm really controlling like that. And I think it comes off in the, in the product itself. You can see the, the excellence there. But, um, yeah, I've really, I think my great fear was setting the bar so low on the pricing and it's actually kind of coming true. I'm really looking at the numbers and it looks great that I've, I'm at 225 grand or whatever it is, but that's, that's breaking even. I mean, I'm going to, I'm basically going to break even maybe. Can we, can we break that down a little bit? How how did you come up with the $24,000 goal? Well, I just sat there and I thought to myself, you know what I mean? If this doesn't, if no one responds to this, because I have that thing in the back of my head where I'm like, okay, well, either it's going to make a hundred grand or it's, I'm going to be struggling to get to 24. And I genuinely didn't believe, um, you know, there's, there's more a part of that side of me saying like, yeah, nobody's going to go for this. So I I primed it by knowing that I could make basically a hundred clocks for sure, because I've actually already made a hundred clocks more or less, you know, I have the body parts and things like this. So even if I made 24 grand, I could, I could deliver, you know, that's, that's the way I looked at it. I I priced it to where it's right on the edge of, um, being able to just deliver for everybody. I may be able to make more clocks than what Kickstarter purchases. So perhaps after I deliver all the Kickstarter, maybe in 2017, if I have a couple hundred clocks left over, I can sell those at the uh, appropriate price and hopefully, uh, turn a profit, but I, I, you know, I'm mean, gonna keep my hope up. I, I have other things that I do to to make money. This isn't a. This has never been like I'm gonna get rich kind of thing. Um, this is like I, I'm. I really want to give back. I've I've been given so much, and I've I've had so much uh, given to me. I I just feel like there's. If I don't do this, then I'm I'm not being um, the best I can be. I guess. Hmm. Yeah. So, yeah. That's this is where this is coming from. What about your uh, like manufacturing issues? It seems like you know everything we've kind of talked about is you know thinking of this of time in this in this new way and you know the the video side of, of your equation. When did you start dabbling in like actually making a physical product that requires people around Brooklyn to you know come on board? Like how, how did how did that happen for you? Well, originally with the present, that was the summer of 2011. I made a prototype of the present. You know, hired some people to. Um, hack a regular movement and do all these things. And in that same instance, I thought maybe, okay, I'll sell a hundred of these. I'll wind up selling, I don't know, 800 clocks or something. And I made 2000, you know, nobody's, nobody wants to make 800 of anything. You got them. There's minimum order quantities. Um, but I started getting into that in, uh, the summer of 2011 and, you know, worked really hard with everybody throughout 2012, trying to get, trying to hit that deadline, you know, trying to get the clocks made and really rushing things um, to fulfill this idea of, you know, making the backers happy when the truth is they really just want you to nail it. Mm. Um, so, so I think that was, it was all along 2012. And since then, uh, since I got into the MoMA in 2014, basically I made 2000 clocks. I delivered those for the Kickstarters about, I don't know, a thousand to Kickstarter people and some other independent sales. I sold a thousand to the MoMA. They started selling those in 2014 and in 2014, 2015, I started making another thousand. So basically, I've been making clocks nonstop. So I already have all of the um, um, mechanisms set up. Like I know exactly what I'm doing. I've, I've actually made a lot of mistakes. I've learned a lot. I've had a ton of failure, wasted a ton of money on stupid decisions. 
And now that's another one of the reasons I decided to make this happen. Cause I was like, Oh, this is, I can do this. You know, mm-hmm. and a lot of people said, you know, you should, you should go with a watch first. And I do want to eventually do a watch, but I don't know how to make watches right now. I, I don't know how much that's really going to cost realistically. This is why I, I've, I've made the wall clocks and the, and the desk clocks because I do know how to make that. And I, and I'm really confident about, it. I mean, I've already paid for all the tooling. It's really just kind of, I don't want to say it's going to be a walk in the park, but it's, it's really just calling up the people that I've already made 3,000 of something with and saying, hey, will you make another 3,000 or whatever the number is going to be. Right. What, uh, what advice would you give to someone that's thinking about launching a product design Kickstarter? What, what could you tell them in the early stage that, that helped you with two of these, three of these projects under your belt so far? Um, I think the huge mistake that I made the first time around was just really not understanding how long and how much money it was going to cost. I mean, I raised 97000 on the first Kickstarter project. <clears throat> After Kickstarter, that comes to like eighty eight. dollars uh, It cost and about $250,000 to make those 2,000 clocks. So I had to take on all kinds of investment. I really, you know, shot myself in the foot. It was, it was insane. I mean, $88,000 is a nice chunk of change, but there was no way that I could make the clock that I wanted to make with 88 grand impossible. Uh, so I had to take on all kinds of investment and pull money from my existing company to, to make it happen. So the advice would be to really cover your bases and trying to figure out exactly how much it's going to cost. Um, spend the money, even though it's painful, spend a couple of grand, uh, trying to make the actual prototype and, and, you know, make some mistakes and make some failures just because it's, once you bring stuff into the real world, and, and as a filmmaker, you know this as well, it's like once you get out there and you're starting to film something, Murphy's Law kicks in and everything that will go wrong or can go wrong will go wrong. And the world of manufacturing is almost double that intensity. There's something about industrial design that is punishingly difficult in that you know you make one tiny little move. You're like, yeah, but if I just change this size of this one screw and then it literally changes the entire program of, of, of your manufacturing business. I don't know. It's, it's a crazy thing to get into. So I would just warn people that whatever it is that you're making, um, I've said this many times before, cause I, you know, I get that question, like what, what's your advice? The advice is do something that you really, really care about because you're going to be living with it for a very long time. You've really got to put a lot of time into it. So don't make it something that, you know, is going to hold an iPhone in a different way you know, than, than the next guy's thing. I, I really want to push people to make something aspirational, something inspirational. I think that's what makes Kickstarter great is when somebody brings something to the table where it's like, whoa, okay, that's awesome. And I think that that's how people are, are responding to my projects, thankfully. But I wish that there was more of that. And, and I hate to see Kickstarter used as sort of this um, uh, pre-sale, um, you know, kind of Chatsky environment. So... Make it great. Make it great and believe in it and, and really go for it uh, and know what you're getting yourself into. Those are, th- those are just those things alone should take you six months <laughs> to figure out at least. <laughs> yep. Yeah. Uh, so what's the future? I mean, you know, cash is going to be rolling in here, obviously, for you. You're going to hit your goal no matter what. So what, what is, you know, what does next year look like? Uh, next year, I'm, I'm really, I mean, my brain right now is focused on, um, you know, get the schedule that I have lined up 
all the things that need to happen bet between here and December, where I do mm -hmm. really feel confident that I'm going to be able to start shipping in November. Um, next year, you know, I think it's it's great to be in the uh, the MoMA Design Store. It's it's awesome, actually. It's a pretty prestigious place. Um, it's really hard to get in there, and they they reached out to me, uh, and so that's been great. But I don't know who. Once I sell it to the MoMA, um, I don't know who has it after that. Like I don't know who actually buys the clock. Hmm. So I think I'm going to pull back from doing wholesale and retail, uh, and focus on having a direct sale business. Uh, number one, so that I can form relationships with the people that I'm sending this thing to and they can know that it's for me and they can know that they can uh, contact me and I can have their address so I can send them a letter or whatever it is. Um, I really want to form relationships here because this is such a small, uh, thing. It's such a tiny, you know, 3000 clocks isn't, a, I mean, it's a lot when you put 3000 people in a room, that's a huge amount of people. Um, and it's, you know, when you put 3000 components of clocks in a room, it's even more, but, um, the, the fact is that I, I really want to build this slow and steady. I mean, this is something I'm going to be doing for the rest of my life as long as I live. I can see myself being 58. I can see myself being 64 and making these clocks. I don't, there is no, this isn't like a, this is a life work of mine. This, is, this isn't something that is going to get old to me. Um, and, I, and I really think that as, as time goes on, it will be uh, even more important to people. It's great, man. It is really great. Is there like a, uh, I, don't even, I don't really know how to word this. Is there like an education process that has to go along with your clock when the, you know, to somebody that picks it up, you know, like, does that make sense? I mean, I'm trying, sure. I'm trying to imagine like my mom coming over and looking at it and going, what, <laughs> you know, what, you know, uh, so what does that look like for you? Um, you well, it? I think that that's, um, part of, Part of what next year will be is this education platform of making videos, of connecting a little bit more with the audience. This is why I want to know them a little bit better. But um, yes, definitely, there is an education that needs to happen because honestly, even the today is a little bit easier to understand. Present, The present is just like, what? A 365-day clock. And actually, it's in the MoMA design store, so people walk up to it and they just think it's a regular clock that's broken. And so I have to go there constantly and everybody that gets hired new, like stop by and be like, hey, so this is this thing. Um, and it doesn't really sell well in stores because of that fact. It sells really well online because people can read about what the idea is and they can see a video, so on and so forth. Um, but yes, there is, there's an education definitely that needs to happen here just because, I mean, we've been inundated. Every single one of us, everybody in the whole world has been living on one way of looking at time our whole lives. Mm -hmm. And so when you, when you introduce a new thing, I think people just immediately you know, are against change. They'll look for a way to shoot it down. Yep. That's one of the first things. Unless it's sort of a creative type. They're like, yeah, awesome. Let's go for it. Um, but for the most part, you know, a lot of people are just like, what? what? Why don't you, uh, haven't you heard of a calendar? This is what I got. I got a lot of that when I uh, started releasing the present. Or, or even now with today, it's like, um, don't, yeah, this would be great for people that don't have windows. Right. <laughs> it's, right. Just, it's, it's so funny to me because, um, you know, f well, first off, this is, this is an artwork, um, but it's not an accurate representation of sunrise and sunset. That would be working against you because you'd have an unbalanced line. Every single day would be a little bit different. This is about forming um, balance uh, and something you can sort of count on but not count on <laughs> right. something, something you form a relationship with, but sorry. Yeah. I mean, I think it's, 
I think that's the fun part. The fun part is educating people about it and and opening people's minds. That's what this is all about. On the, on the topic of education, you know, my son is four and a half years old. And I think if I put the today clock in a room, he would get it. I think he wouldn't, you know, I, I don't think he would need any education at all. He, he would get it. Yeah. Yeah. The same thing happens with the present. You'd be amazed. Everybody, the kids up to about seven or eight, like all of them get it immediately. Yeah. Yeah. That's summer. And that's, Mm -hmm. and then, and then, you know what I mean? And then people that are like, um, a little bit over 50, 55, they really are really deep into the present. They love it so much. That's kind of like the main market for it. Just people who are able to appreciate time on a whole nother level. Of course, I mean, it's the market spans, you know, very huge variety of people, but I would say, yeah, young kids get it immediately. It's kind of amazing to see. Yeah. Well, Scott, I mean, I can't, I can't tell you enough how much we appreciate you coming on and, and tell us about your project and, and let us, letting us kind of pick your brain. It, it's unbelievable. It really is. And, uh, I'm, I'm really glad I found it personally for myself and, uh, I know my team thinks the same way. So, um, this is awesome, man. Likewise. I'm really uh, appreciative to be, uh, you know, talking about it with you guys has really helped me see it even more clearly. So thank you for, uh, for giving me the time. Yeah, no problem. Something that I need to tell you, baby. So listen closely so you'll understand. Well, what did I tell you? Now, that was a solid interview. That project is uh, so, so, so good. And I really do hope that you guys check it out. Go support Scott. Uh, buy a clock. Be an early backer. Get become part of this revolution because uh, it is so cool. And I, like I said in the interview, I'm so glad uh, I had a chance to talk to him. I'm, I'm glad I got to find it. Uh, uh, and I'm glad I'm going to be part of this early, uh, these early conversations and, and, and proud to be a backer of the project. It's so exciting. Um, so, yeah. So coming up next week on the podcast, uh, we have an interview with Alan Tang, and he has developed a very cool uh, uh, um, smartphone case that helps you boost your signal and uh, eliminates drop calls. So it's a really cool conversation with a company that is on the cusp of a really interesting technology. And I think you guys are going to dig that conversation too. So that's coming up next week. His name is Alan Tang again. His his campaign is up. I'll put a link to that as well in the page if you want to check that out. Um, like I said, that's next week. And uh, one other thing is... You know, we're going to try to support here at the end of each one of these podcasts with a project that we know is funded on Kickstarter or Indiegogo that we are into. And uh, the one I want you guys to check out this week is The Wrecking Crew, which you can find usually on Netflix. Uh, I think it's on Hulu. Uh, or you can go to iTunes and purchase it. So The Wrecking Crew is a documentary on the 60s and 70s and into the early 80s uh, studio musicians out in L.A., and uh, Sean and myself had a chance to be a part of that team and helped on their Kickstarter campaign. Um, but really, if you do watch this movie, it is such a history lesson. If you are into music and if you're into, you know, the songs of that era, this is where they came from. And the stories are so rich. The story of Denny Tedesco and his father, very, very heart-wrenching. Uh, and I, I bring it up because, you know, the project's a few years old, but I bring it up because of Father's Day. And you get to really see, too, uh, 
Denny kind of learning as much as he did about his dad through this story. And if you've got time, go to Netflix, watch this documentary. I'm telling you, it is such a good piece of content. And you'll by the end of it, you'll you'll be happy you watched it. Um, so go check that out. I'll put that link as well in the page. And yeah, so this is it. I think we're at the end here of our very first episode of Successfully Funded. I hope you all have hope you've all enjoyed it. I hope you guys tune in next week uh, when we break down Alan Tang's uh, Kickstarter campaign. And that's it. I'm out. Peace. Peace.